Today's reading is taken from Amos, chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, and continuing at chapter 4. Hear this word, the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. The only have I chosen of all families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you woman who oppresses the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through bricks in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offering. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld a rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent a rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rained, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you, as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with the captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He who forms the mountain, creates the wind, and reveals his thoughts to man. He who turns dawn to darkness, and tread the high places of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. This is God's word. Now that's an odd reading, isn't it? Uh, that's not the sort of nice little homily you want as um, at a baptism, probably, is it? It's not that sort of passage. It's very, what is going on here? The book of Amos is one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And essentially, for nine chapters, it's a sermon that's recorded. Uh, it's longer than mine, you'll be pleased to know. But the, uh, it's a sermon that's recorded, and essentially, Amos is just going to the people and smacking a fire alarm and saying, can you just wake up, please? And fire alarms are actually never pleasant, are they? I don't know how it works for you, but in, in our office, just over the road, at uh, 11 a.m. on a Thursday morning, we have our fire drill. I never remember. My wife did say, you should set an alarm on your phone, which I have now done, which saves me. Because otherwise, I sit right underneath a Blooper, bleeper, bleeper, whatever you call them, siren, foghorn, 
instrument of torture, whatever you want to call it, on the ceiling. I sit right by the end, uh, you're merrily reading something or working or answering an email, and all of a sudden, woo, woo, and you sort of have to dive underneath the desk, and you get a shot of adrenaline that, well, this has gone on for weeks. I think I've lost three years of my life <laughs> to the stress of this thing going off. Fire alarms are not pleasant. They're deeply unpleasant when they go off loudly in your ear, but there is a purpose to them. Unpleasant as they are, they they're trying to save you if there's genuinely a fire taking place. Amos is smacking the fire alarm here. Originally, then, this is a, it's a sermon that he gave in the year 760 BC, a good number of years ago. And uh, he gave this message then to the people of Israel, the nation. God had uh, taken them out of Egypt from slavery, taken them into the promised land, blessed them. They'd uh, become this vast and prosperous people. But here's a warning from Amos. Essentially, it's twofold. Your behavior is despicable in two ways, really. One, the way you treat the worst in society is abominable. And the gap between rich and poor is a disgrace. That's my first problem, says God. And the second one is how you treat me, which is just as some sort of genie in the lamp, a fairy godfather who sprinkles and just will be kind. Whatever you, know, whatever you do, it's all okay. You've got a problem because of those two things. And let me warn you, Israel, in 760 BC, unless you change, this country will get invaded and your nation will be destroyed. Tragically, they didn't. In the year 722 BC, uh, Assyria invaded, conquered, took over the land. Now, you come to something like this then, and immediately we're presented with an issue. What do you, what do, you do when you come to this? And it's an old book, but it's still a warning. It's a warning from the living God that he'll judge this world with justice. I don't know. What do you do with that? I mean, many here will be Christians, and, you know, okay, well, I'm used to that. I've heard that before. But if you're not certain, what do you do with something like that? Because some people today in a modern society, they... They hate the idea of God watching this world, and at some points he'll implement a justice or judgment. And to some, you know this, that, that concept is just anathema. On one hand, I don't really understand why, because we're quite happy in lots of other spheres of our lives to have scrutiny I mean, when you and I go on an airplane and we have the nuisance and the pain of uh, going through security and here's our coins and, oh, my shoes, really? Really? Okay, and so you have to go through that. But generally, we're quite glad that there's airport security and that sort of level of scrutiny because it stops something awful happening. It stops the bad people doing their worst. And so we're generally quite happy that there's someone scrutinizing and observing or just on a more general level, of the police force. You go to a large-scale event, a sporting event, or some, something, uh, some parade in the centre of London. It's quite good that the police are there. You know, they're just keeping an eye on things. They're, they're there to maintain security. And most of us, unless we're doing up to something no good, most of us are thinking that level of scrutiny is a useful thing. We like the fact that people are watching to protect us. And we like the fact that if crimes are committed, there'll be justice. We think that's good. And yet, when it comes to God, people don't like it. Why not? There's sort of a logical gap there, it seems to me. 
But of course, the issue is people don't like the idea that they're being watched, that they might be doing something wrong. That's the issue, not for the fact that there's a God. So Amos chapters 3 and 4, they're part of this, uh, this uh, book then that is saying, you, you need to change. And this little section, chapters 3 and 4, are really building up to chapter 4, verse 12. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Are you ready? And in one sense, that's a contemporary question. You could ask all of us. Are you ready to meet God? I mean, it's a fairly blunt question, isn't it? Well, who wants that on a Sunday morning? But that is the question Amos asks. Are you ready to do that? Now, before we jump in, just uh, chapters, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Um, let's just try and work out what's going on here uh, about how really this this sermon from almost 3,000 years ago, how it does apply to us. Amos is speaking to Israel. Israel are a nation. God had made a special covenant or promise and had a special relationship with that nation that is no longer true of any nation, be it Israel or any other on, on, on the planet. God now makes his covenant, special promises to the church, his people. But chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, just make the point The privilege brings responsibility. If you know him, he does expect a bit more of you. So just chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord speaking, You, Israel, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore I'll punish you for all your sins. Special privilege from God brings extra scrutiny. That's what Amos is saying. And in one sense that we're familiar with that sort of idea, Prince Harry has a life of privilege. Uh, he gets to meet lots of interesting people, go and do lots of interesting things. I don't think he's short of money. You know, he has a life of great privilege. But alongside that, if he hasn't worked it out by now, you really hope he would have done, there is a little bit of extra scrutiny that goes with being a member of the royal family. So not that I advise it, but if you or I went and played naked pool in Las Vegas, we'd probably, no one would know about it. But if you're Prince Harry and you do such a thing, your photo is everywhere, all over the internet and some of the newspapers. If that sort of privilege brings a little bit of extra scrutiny with it. But I don't know, you'd have to ask him, is that a good trade? Well, I don't know, probably on balance, um, if you behave yourself. Um, And that's what's being said here. If you have a relationship with God, but abuse it, well, look, extra privilege brings extra scrutiny, responsibility. You just need to bear that in mind. Okay, let's jump into verse 4, but chapter 4, rather. But how, how then are we to hear this? If you call yourself a Christian, what do you make of Amos chapter 4? We're not a nation back then which is about to be invaded by Assyria that's not going to happen. Um, what's, this, what's the similarity? Well, if you're a Christian, or if you'd call yourself a Christian, I think Amos largely comes at us in these two ways. The first is it's just a warning against presumption. Amos's audience, they thought they were fine. They thought they were fine. God has chosen us as a nation. God is on our side. It doesn't matter what we do. God will look after us. There's just a presumption there that it's fine. The majority of the nation were nominal believers, just going through the motions, although some were genuine. Now, in that sense, you can come to the UK where still 
two-thirds of the population would put themselves in the box marked, marked Christian and say, well, hold on, Amos would just warn you against presumption there. There are undoubtedly in the UK many who call themselves Christian but actually have no real relationship with the living God. So just be careful you don't presume too much. It's just a warning to those who are nominal. Perhaps say something like, well, me and God, we're fine. I don't trouble him. He doesn't trouble me. It works. I'm a Christian. No, says Amos. He wants a bit more than that. So there's a warning against presumption. And then secondly, for those who are Christians, there's a warning, I guess, here that God disciplines his children. Common truth throughout the Bible, God is a father who loves his children by disciplining them, not letting them get out of control. So if you hear any of the warnings of Amos and think, oh, yeah, I get that wrong, and no, I get that wrong. What Amos would say, well, don't be surprised if God imposes some form of loving discipline upon your life. Okay, chapter 4. Chapter 4 is similar to many others. It picks out two, two of the main issues of the book, two challenges. How are we treating other people and how are we are relating to the living God? But it puts them in fairly expressive language. So let's uh, punch through these three things. Amos says, well, this is the Lord speaking, but prepare to meet me first. Prepare to meet me, you selfish cows. It's fruity language, isn't it, from God? Uh, prepare to meet me, secondly, you self-absorbed worshippers. Uh, and then third is a bit different. When God says, I have sought to prepare you. Let's try and make sense of it. Chapter 4, verse uh, 1, uh, 1 to 3. Prepare to meet me, you selfish cows. Ouch. That is not a sexist thing. If you read on in chapter 6, the wealthy men get even worse. So look forward to that, you men. Um, but chapter 4, you need to take yourself back to this sort of scene, don't you? The ladies' luncheon club of Samaria. You know, what should we do next month when we have our regular gathering? What about Amos? <sighs> He's a bit edgy, a bit controversial. Yes, it'll be interesting. So they invite Amos, the sort of controversial man, and they invite him. They all have their very nice lunch, and uh, they're supping their champagne, and their jewels are, are dangling off, off them all in other places. And uh, the, the chair says, well, Mr. Amos, it's very lovely to have you here. We're all very much looking forward to what you've got to say. We, we hear you have some quite very you know, striking things that you're going to say to us today. We're very much looking forward to it. Thank you for making the time to come and speak to us, Mr. Amos. And he stands up and says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. And there's a little bit of choking on the G&T as his words are a little blunter than they were expecting, perhaps. What's it? I mean, it is literally what he says. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Bashan was where you got the best cattle, the best fed cattle, the plumpest, wealthiest. So there's a sense in which he says, listen up, you fat cows. That's what he says. Now, fat cows being good in the culture of the time because they're worth a lot of money. Golly, I don't think he got an honorarium that day or an invite back. What's he saying here? Listen up, you cows of Bashan, you women who oppress the poor, crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. His point seems to be, you're just like animals, really, you women. Sleek and expensive, like the, uh, the expensive cows of Bashan, but all you're concerned about is the physical body, and you couldn't care less about your soul. 
just like an animal in that sense. Well, it's a little bit different then in the culture. Then, if you're wealthy, you plumped yourself up. A good bit of plump shows you're eating good food. And of course, now you slim yourself down and the obsession is getting slimmer, not plumper. But the obsession is still the same. It's body rather than character. That's what he's attacking here. Although, I guess the main emphasis of the attack, what is it? Do be careful. He's not criticizing their money. He's got no problem with their wealth, just how they got it. That's true throughout the Bible. The Bible has no problem with people being extravagantly wealthy. There are many fabulously wealthy people in the Bible who are praised. The issue is how you get it and what you do with it. And how have they got their money? Well, verse 1, they oppress the poor. Wealthy families showing absolutely no compassion for the penniless. Just abuse them to gain more money for themselves. The wealthy landowner or farmer who prays, excuse me, who pays the fruit pickers 50 pence a day or 50 pence an hour for 12 hours work in the fields in the summer. I guess it's that sort of thing. They crush the needy. The needy here, the vulnerable in society, not penniless, but just on the edge. I guess here the point is it's like a, uh, I get the, the multinationals or perhaps more prosaically, the supermarkets squeezing the farmers to make, to make them sell their produce at a loss. We're wealthy, but we're just going to squeeze the people below us to get even more and even more. It's that sort of issue. And then these women, they're just saying to their husbands, bring us some drinks. Because you just, we're just, who are the little people? We'll just squeeze money out of the little people and husband, just pay the subscription for the club, will you please? And bring me another, bring me another spritzer. What Amos is criticizing is self-indulgence and social malpractice just for the sake of self-pleasing. That's what's got him exercised. And so I guess for you and for me, Amos would say, look, here's a couple of questions for Londoners. Do you care obsessively about your body to the detriment of your soul? Or more acutely, are you content to expand your own wealth with not a concern for how the most vulnerable in society are doing and whether it comes at their expense? Those are quite biting questions probably for us, aren't they, in central London? Prepare to meet your God. A second thing there's he moves on from the selfish cows. He doesn't really cheer up, if the truth be told. So verses 4 to 5, prepare to meet you, you self-absorbed worshippers. Verses 4 to 5. Now, verses 4 to 5, I have to say, I think are quite encouraging if you're an Englishman, because God is being deeply sarcastic. And uh, English are good at being sarcastic if you're not from England. You know, most people take a little while to adjust to that. Quite sure. Is that funny or rude? I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, for us Brits, this is good because it's sarcasm and we like sarcasm. So um, the Bible tells us we can be sarcastic. It's clear. But he is being sarcastic here. But it is unsettling. I mean, how would you feel if someone arrived, if you're a member of the church, if someone arrived at Christ Church this morning and said, God hates everything you do when you gather together. He hates everything. Oh. Oh. Really? It's quite good, isn't it? It's all right. I mean, the organ's broken, but, you know, the band are doing all right, so that's okay. I mean, you know, can't get it all right every time. Oh, dear. This is a bit blunt. Now, what is the problem here? Well, the problem here seems to be uh, 
It's just all about them, and they don't care about God. Now, verse 4, he's criticizing their sort of obsessive ritualism. So they bring sacrifices every morning. Well, in the Old Testament, God says you only have to bring them once a year. What do you bring them every morning for? Or they bring their tithes, their financial gifts. As the footnote says, every three days. Well, God said every three years is obsessive ritual-keeping. And so Amos just says, yeah, carry on, carry on with your silly acts like this. Yes, carry on. Have another mass. Have another high mass. Go on, swing more incense around. Have more elaborate robes. Have 20 different colors in your robes. Have everyone, give everyone a little dish and sort of swing them round and fill the air with smoke. Go on. Why not have a go at that? Or you're from a slightly younger culture. Just pump out more dry ice from the front. God loves dry ice. Nothing he likes more. Turn up the bass. Oh, he loves a bass guitar. Turn up the bass. Blow out the dry ice. Have some disco lighting. Yeah, why don't you do that? Because God hates what you're doing. Says Amos. Oh, golly. Now, what precisely is wrong? Well, verse 5, I think, nails it. End of verse 5. Oh, he goes on, bring all these offerings, boast about what you're doing. You know, have, write down in a book how brilliant you are. Says, for this is what you love to do. So here's the point, I think. Here's Amos's issue, or the Lord's issue, is what is wrong. They gather together in a church on Sunday, but they just do what they want. It's just for their own benefit and nothing else. They don't really want to meet with God. That would be awkward. But just, I don't know, something just, just to tickle their fancy intellectually. Just a little intellectual tickle. Not too challenging. It is Sunday after all. Just a little emotional puff. Oh, I feel a little bit, I feel a little bit better now. Or maybe just quiet, just a little bit of me time. Can the children go away and we can just sit for half an hour? If the sermon's long enough, I'll probably get a good nap in. Just a little bit of me time. That's all I'm after in church. And Amos says, what about the Lord? What about him? You're not worshipping God. You're just going along to make yourself feel good. By contrast, we'll get there in a moment. By contrast, if you genuinely want to meet with the Lord... He'll change you. You will change your mind on things. You'll change your lifestyle if you meet with him. We'll get there in a moment, but just, just, you must have heard it when the, when the reading was read. The constant refrain, verse 6, end of, you've not returned to me. That's the problem. End of verse 8, you've not returned to me. End of verse 9, you've not returned to me. End of verse 10, you've not returned to me. End of verse 11, you've not returned to me. The problem is, if you come genuinely to meet with me, the living God, you will return or repent. You'll change your mind. You'll say, I'm doing some things wrong and I want to live for you now. But if there's no change in your life, you just come along and it's just, it's all right, church. It's just kind of what you do and some of the people are nice as long as you avoid, avoid him. Um, no, you're just self-absorbed. Practically, what the Lord desires is that you and I return to him. He doesn't care about the rituals of church. He says, I want you to return to me or repent. It's the same word. Turn around. Now, some, of course, need to do that for the first time. Essentially, we all, we all live our own. 
we all live our lives, if God is behind here, we all live our lives just walking away from God. Either deliberately or sort of we drift and we just walk away. And the Lord says, what you need to do is turn around, repent, and start walking back towards me. And some of us need to do that for the first time. That's the way we prepare to meet our God, turning around, walking back to him, repentance. And for those of us who are Christians, we just do that in an ongoing sense. I'll make changes to my life. I'm walking towards the Lord, and then I realize, oh, this has got to change. So I'll just quicken my pace. I'll no longer, whatever it is, cheat a little bit on tax bills. No longer behave badly sexually. Just constant little changes. I want you to return to me, says the Lord. Repentance. Or even more, perhaps, prosaically, for those of us who are here week in, week out. I guess this does ask the question, do we prepare to meet our God when we gather? Or do we just drift in? For myself, I, I take it as a personal little habit to always, before coming to church, read Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any way offensive in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, if you're a Christian, you come to meet with the Lord and say, Lord, I want to meet with you in a way that leaves me changed. I want you to change me. So prepare to meet me, you selfish cows. Prepare to meet me, you self-absorbed worshippers. And then there's a change of direction, really. Because the Lord sticks to the end, says, I have tried to prepare you for when we meet. There's a change of focus here. No longer demanding change, but a list of the ways that God has blocked Israel, caused them difficulty. Five ways that he's disciplined them. It's a striking list. So verse 6, I've withheld food from you, but you've not returned to me. Verse 7, I withheld rain from you. Verse 9, I struck your crops. Verse 10, I sent plagues. Verse 11, I allowed Syria to invade and capture some people in the north of the kingdom. But you've not returned to me. Now, this is a strong truth. God allows his people to suffer pain to prevent greater agony. I read an article a couple of months ago. Uh, it was about a chap called Stephen Pete. The article was called The Agony of Feeling No Pain. He's a guy who's got congenital analgesia. You know, that's that funny genetic disease where you touch things and you've got a sense of touch, but there's no sense of pain, no sense of hot or cold. And so he it was him telling his life story, really, how uh, from they, it was diagnosed fairly early on when he was about four or five months, he started chewing his tongue and he chewed right through his tongue. And so he's only, he lost about a quarter of it. And the parents thought, hold on a minute, that, that's weird. You know, you go to the doctor and, you know, the, the, this is not cruel. This is a fairly standard test, apparently. They put a, a lighter underneath the child's foot. Does he feel anything? No. No, until it blisters. And, but, you know, no sense of pain at all. 
in this young boy. And he said he was terrible growing up as a child like that because he spent most of his childhood with a broken something or other, with a cast here or here or here or here or here. Because unlike you and me, we'd push our bodies to a point and think, oh, I've got to stop that. Ow, that hurts. He'd always just keep on going. Tells all these stories of going ice skating and um, skating around, and he's having a good time until someone says, you've got a problem there. Well, what's the problem? Look down. Blood everywhere, and he's broken a bone, but he doesn't know. He just pushes his body beyond what's sensible, what's logical. And uh, the tragic thing, he says, now in his 30s, he's had to have so many operations on his left leg that they've decided to amputate it completely because it's just so gone and battered, and he's less likely to damage himself if it's not there. And he said the thing he fears most of all is internal injuries because they'll kill him and he won't know. If you or I have a burst appendix, ooh, you know about it. And you get yourself to the doctor's pretty quickly before you know it destroys you and kills you. If he has something like that, he wouldn't know. No idea. Terrible, terrible way to live. And the article was called, as I say, The Agony of Feeling No Pain. Because for most of us, for you and me, the purpose of pain is a warning. And it prevents greater agony of us doing serious damage to ourselves. Pain is a good thing. It's a warning to us. And that's the point that God is making here in uh, Amos chapter 6, so excuse me, chapter 4, and the, the, the last few verses here. He's saying, I have sent pain into the life of my people to prevent greater agony. I've sent pain into the life of Israel to... Come on, come on. Come on, everyone. Will you just wake up because you're, you're, you're going to be invaded as a nation and that's going to cause all sorts, you know, that's great agony coming your way. So I'll send you pain to wake you up. And God does that sometimes. I'll send the pain of no food, no crops, no rain. So you avoid the agony of something much worse. My decisive judgment. You need to be careful. If things go wrong in your life, don't immediately uh, jump to that conclusion. Pain in this life is not always discipline. Don't make that uh, conclusion. But sometimes, yes. Why does he do it? Why would God do such a thing like that? Well, the, the, the refrain is obvious because he wants us to return to him. Not because he's lonely, but because we were made for him. And he said to his people then, he'd say to you and me, if you wander off without me, it distorts you. You turn into self-absorbed worshippers and selfish cows who trample on other people for your own financial gain. We're lost without him. And so I've sought to prepare you. I've sent difficulty into your lives, says the Lord. Have you heard that? Prepare to meet your God, says Amos. Verse 12. Therefore, this is what I'll do to you, Israel. That is, I'll allow you to be invaded by Assyria. And because I'll do this to you, prepare to meet your God. There's a hint of ambiguity there. Obviously, there's a, there's a summons to judgment. You're going to be invaded, but still, your God. So you can say to the people, there's still relationship there. That makes all the difference. If you're a 14-year-old teenager and you know you're in trouble, 
If you know you're going to be disciplined by the policeman, that's a bit worrying. If you're going to be disciplined by your dad, at least you assume he's on your side. And that's what God is saying here. Prepare to meet your God. I am still for you. Will you return to me? Will you come back? The Christian is one who knows they need to return to the Lord and has done so. They've done that and said, I know I have lived a self-absorbed life. I've been selfish at times. I know that, but I know that Jesus Christ did not. He lived a perfect life. And that on the cross, there was just a swap. I get his perfection. He took my punishment. The Christian is one who says, I have met God in Jesus Christ. I know I'm forgiven, and I'm ready to meet my Lord and Maker again. And, and now I've met him. Now I know Jesus Christ. I've realized that actually knowing him, it is greater than just selfish accumulation. It pulls me out of being self-absorbed and makes me outward-focused. It's very wonderful knowing him. And so meet your God now in Jesus Christ. Meet him in the language of verse 13. Don't shrink God down to a convenient little doll that you can take for granted. Look how he's described in verse 13. He who forms the mountains creates the wind and reveals his thoughts to man. He who turns dawn to darkness and treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. Now, that God will change you. He'll transform you. The Christian says, I've met my God in Jesus Christ, and he's changing me slowly. Are you ready to meet your God? says Amos chapter 4. No one likes the fire alarm. But we need to hear it. It'll save us from greater harm. Prepare to meet your God, says Amos. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, these are not really the words we want to hear on a Sunday morning. They're much too abrupt, rude, challenging. We don't want to take them seriously. But we pray that we would. That we'd recognize within ourselves our selfish desire for accumulation at the expense of others, our self-absorption. And we would prepare ourselves for meeting with you by trusting in Jesus Christ. Father, no matter how familiar or unfamiliar with these things we are, help us to understand them. In his name we pray. Amen.